This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or feint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. It's your host, Piotr, speaking. And this time around, we're going to be discussing Libya. Now, Libya is a country that has seen a horrendous civil war plague its people uh, and the country for almost a decade, starting arguably around 2014, and in some eyes coming to a drawdown, or if not an official close, uh, around the end of 2020, the country still remains in a very fragile situation, uh, with their attempted efforts to build a unity government, shall we say, slacking a little bit. Now, there had been efforts to hold elections late last year, but unfortunately, due to infighting and disagreements, that fell through as well. Throughout much of the com- uh, conflict, there have been two prevailing sides, the transitional government on one side supported by the United Nations and Western coalitions, and then on the other side, General Hafter and some of his rebel forces on the other side supported indirectly through, say, a certain country known as Russia. Now, the role of Russia within the MENA region has been uh, a long-standing one, and the relationship of Libya to Russia is particularly interesting, given the events in Ukraine and Russia's invasion there, but its uh, flailing campaign, shall we say. Observers have begun to notice a shift in Russia's overall foreign policy when it comes to other regions of the world, including its ability to exert its influence uh, as effectively as it once did. Joining me today to discuss these issues intricately, hopefully, and about the Wagner Group particularly, is Hafed Al-Gawel, a non-resident senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of Johns Hopkins Sice School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, he's also a senior advisor at Maxwell Stamp Incorporated, the international economic consultancy firm, where he specialised in the Middle East and North African political economy issues, and has also led the global strategical commons practice. Uh, he's also a senior uh, advisor with Oxford Analytica, the global risk consultancy, and he's been serving as a member of the Strategical Advisory Solutions International group or SASI. Lots of sasses, sisses today. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us, Hafad. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate your kindness in inviting me and I, I hope I'll be able to uh, to at least uh, put the perspective on, on, on Libya and the significance um, of the I Ukraine. Think you're, I think you're not going to succeed, you're going to excel. But, um... <laughs> I hope so. 
We, um, this has been a long time coming. I think we've been uh, arranging this chat for a while. I'm very excited to have it. Uh, so to kick off, I think what would be really useful for our listeners, both on the, uh, on the space uh, of Twitter, but also on the podcast, is to outline to us a little bit about the, the, the current dynamics uh, that we're in sort of vis-a-vis Libya's uh, domestic situation, uh, its relations with the Russians, and also just sort of how we've gotten to this. If you could give us a brief overview, that would be awesome. Uh, sure. Uh, well, the Libya story essentially started in 2011, uh, when um, the revolt against the former regime of Muammar Gaddafi took place as a part of what was uh, or has become known as the Arab Spring. Uh, the fall of that regime in November 2011 brought down with it the entire state of Libya. It wasn't just simply removing a head uh, and maintaining the state. The whole state was dependent on the persona of Gaddafi. And therefore, what happened exactly in Iraq? And unfortunately, the United States and Europe uh, never learned from their mistakes. So they repeated it exactly almost verbatim in Libya. And that is when you remove a head of state like Saddam or Gaddafi, the whole system collapses with it, not just uh, a change of of power structures. So it started then, and and since there was no specific leadership that led that revolt, there were self-appointed figures that came into the the picture, and uh, uh, both the United States and Europe uh, and other countries in the Middle East uh, gave them credibility by recognizing them as the default government. This was a collection of people who were not essentially capable of running even the way I describe it. And I'm going to be very frank here. I'm not going to be diplomatic in in my descriptions of things. I don't think they'll be able to run a a grocery store. (laughs) So you ended up with a collection of people with different backgrounds, different agendas, uh, with some foreign affiliations. And they started a game of almost like a children's game of let's play government. Unfortunately, they were given credibility by, at that time, for example, Obama administration, especially Hillary Clinton, who met with them, invited them, uh, took pictures with them, sort of gave them the entire picture of credibility in front of Libyans and in front of the world. So this group of people, it wasn't really brain surgery to expect that these people are going to turn on each other. And that's exactly what happened. So the same groups that sort of rushed into the power vacuum in 2011 are the ones you see today dividing the country. Since there wasn't really uh, the the armed part of this revolt was actually self-declared revolutionaries who are civilians in in a sense, and a lot of them were ex-criminals and so on who picked up arms. Basically, they stormed the army barracks of Gaddafi and took arms, and they started Uh, As we've seen in other countries in the world, they began to form militias. Uh, These militias, uh, slowly, and since the world never really dealt with them immediately, uh, these militias became, uh, sort of, they began to be, um, they started feeling their power, and that the weapons they're carrying can now generate income for them. And that is how these militias, and we've seen that in other parts of Africa, become really uh, a problem. The fundamental part that where uh, the world went wrong with Libya is that 
At that time, the self-appointed leaders asked NATO after its intervention, and which is really NATO is the one that brought down the Gaddafi regime, not, not really any revolutionaries or a popular revolt at all, because without that, Gaddafi would have put it out very quickly. It was France that pushed the United States and England and others in, uh, in the UN the Security Council to give a sort of a blank check to NATO. Uh, and others to interfere in Libya militarily within a matter of a month after the revolt started. And that changed the entire course dynamics of, of the story. But then these militias and these self-appointed leaders sort of said, OK, you guys helped us to bring Gaddafi down and now we don't need you anymore. Thank you very much. Europe uh, or NATO in general with the United States in it said, OK, great. So, you know, you guys now can run your own country. That, of course, has a lot of background. One of it is for the United States is that, as everybody knows, uh, the U.S. is no longer interested. At that time, it was extremely wary of interfering in, in other Middle Eastern countries after the experiences of Afghanistan and Iraq and didn't really want to inherit the problem. The Europeans sort of promised that they will help build the state, but they reneged on their, those promises. I mean, President Obama, a couple of weeks before he left office, described it publicly uh, in a very, very frank terms. He said uh, it was England and France who promised me they were going to pick up the slack, and but then they failed, and that's why, and this is the direct quote from him, that's why Libya has turned into a shit store. Now, and I'll close with this and that we can delve into any of these uh, deeper. The problem is when the international community accepted that these self-appointed militia leaders and, and wannabe politicians deciding that they should not, that that's it. The, the international role has ended and we are now in control. And that's a self-serving position for them, is when you do not recognize a civil war, which essentially Libya, what Libya was. It was a civil war between pro-Gaddafi uh, elements and those who wanted to bring him down. And then NATO came in to support the anti-Gaddafi dimension, and, and that's why they succeeded. So when you do not recognize a civil war, the problem is not a moral issue. The problem is a pragmatic issue. When you do not recognize a civil war for what it is, that makes you fail in what a civil war usually triggers as in its aftermath. And that is the demobilization of forces, conciliation, and all of that. All of that didn't happen. So the international community has a huge responsibility in the fact that it did not build on this. It did not recognize this is a civil war and we need to deal, deal with it as a civil war and therefore we need to kick in the mechanism of demobilization, uh, disarmament of these militias and reconciliation so you can begin to start uh, building a state. So the civil war state and fragmented and it became a civil war between tribes, between uh, all kinds of smaller cities and so on. Now it's still fragmented. There are still hundreds of militias across the country. However, the two big umbrellas under which a lot of this dynamics now that are happening is the, the side, uh, two sides, uh, the East and the West, which you will see a lot of the press reports about. In the East of the country, uh, there is an ex-general 
who used to be with Gaddafi, and uh, he self-promoted himself into uh, a marshal, a field marshal. And he put a lot of these different militias in the East, including Islamist extremist group, under his command. And he sort of gave them the banner or image that this is an army. And therefore, he is now wearing army uniforms. The people around him wear army uniforms. And the rest of the world basically accepts that and deals with him as if it is a real army. He's the one who opened the door and still does to, for example, the Russians to enter Libya, which is something we're going to discuss in a minute. Then you have the Western side of the country, and that is also controlled by various militias with politicians uh, doing their bidding, basically, and with this facade of uh, civil government and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, a council, a presidential council, and so on. But it's essentially it's there because of the militias behind it. But the power in the western side of Libya is diffused among so many different parties, both military militias and also politicians and groups and so on. And therefore, the margin of freedom of speech and expression and so on is wider in the western side of Libya. So you'll see a lot of debates and discussions going on. As long as you don't touch the essential interest of these militias, you're fine. Nobody's going to bother you. However, in the western side, uh, it is basically uh, a throwback to a very dictatorial regime run by one man, uh, Haftar, and his sons, basically. He has seven sons, and he's promoting them and giving them all kinds of military ranks and uh, putting them in charge of all kinds of military units and where freedom of speech or discussions or even a civil form of government is completely uh, non-existent. So this is where we are today. These are the two groups. And unfortunately, the, the rest of the world is still dealing with them as if they represent the larger population or as if they have the credibility to build uh, in the future. Sorry, it took too long. But no, that's... Uh, that's uh, it's like a spaghetti. The uh, Libya story is like a spaghetti. Every time you pick one... One part, it, it, it keeps on coming out like a magician trick. Well, there's a, you know, we talk about string theory with the, uh, with the astrophysics uh, discoveries yesterday, pictures released. But um, no, I, um, I think that's a great overview. And I, I think many people will talk about the hypocrisy of the West, I think, for the, um, for the liberal interventionism, as it's known, you know, this, uh, this desire to sort of in the Arab Spring to sort of unseat um, Gaddafi uh, to sort of try and impose a more secular government in Libya. But it was, uh, I think, a, a marked example of... But I, ironically, Gaddafi was an extreme secularist. I mean, well, that's he, true. He was, yeah. not, he, he was not by any measure. I mean, he, he pretty much locked up every form of Islamist groups he can think of in the country. Yes, indeed. Um, but just to build on this, so from the international perspective, what I find really interesting is the Russia's presence in the Horn or the n north of Africa, the northeast of Africa is, you know, you've got Sudan and Libya, which have both had their own sort of two countries that have hosted an informal Russian military presence, I guess you could say. But interestingly, you know, Libya was very vocal with the foreign minister condemning Russia, uh, followed uh, less than a week later, I think it was a statement by the uh, PM crying Russia's invasion as, quote, a clear violation of international law and the sovereignty of a democratic Ukraine, uh, as well as Libya voting to suspend Russia's membership in the UN uh, Human Rights Council on April 7th. By contrast, Sudan has taken a much more cautious uh, approach, abstaining 
learning from that and sort of limiting itself to appeals to Russian-Ukraine dialogue. So just curious, you know, Libya's stance, um, do, you, do you feel that the as the conflict has uh, on, gone or continues to go, do you think that Libya's perspective on the matter is beginning to shift, not because they don't disagree with the, the uh, atrocity and, and way that Russia has invaded Ukraine, but because of uh, the impact it's having on them domestically. Do you think that Libya may shift its position to be a bit more, like, you know, nuanced? This is, this is the, the, the problem. Is, uh, there isn't one Libya. There are multiple Libyas. And therefore, you know, the, the government, what's known now as the national unity, which is seated in Tripoli, and which was installed last year with an agreement uh, with, I mean, basically through the UN. And that agreement has actually expired like all other agreements in Libya, yet these power structures are still in place as uh, basically facts of life. That government, yes, it's, it's against the Russian interference in Libya. That's the government that condemned them. That's because the Russian Russians in general, both politically and also through the Wagner Group, were trying to unseat that. The, the government in, in, in the West. And that's the whole point of having them in Libya. They, they reached even the outskirts of the capital in 2019, uh, early 2020, uh, in, with their alliance with, with the rogue general Haftar, who wanted to take over militarily by force. However, the eastern part of Libya, where Haftar and his family rule, uh, they are seen as allies and friends. So the vote at the UN is because the UN still recognizing the government in Tripoli as the legitimate government. But then you have, but that legitimate government only rules a part of the country, you know, just in the western part. Uh, the rest of the country follows Haftar by force. I mean, he basically occupied most of uh, the eastern part of the country, even the southwest. And that was entirely because of the Wagner Group abilities to help him do that. So it's it's very hard to talk of one Libya here and whether Libya as a government or as a state is voting this way or the other way. You have to qualify it by which government are you talking about. Now, currently, you have two governments in Libya. One that is still officially, at least, is recognized by the others where it, you know, that has embassies and so on, and the UN. And the other one, uh, that is ruling in the western part of the country and uh, the southwest uh, is not recognized, but it's still a government that is allied uh, and partnered with Hafs. No, I, I think that's a, a, a very good, again, broad take. I, it's, I don't think enough people sort of split Libya into the two enough. Sometimes they just look at it as, as broadly speaking, a country that's just in a bit of a mess. But you really do have this quite clear, I think, split down the middle. All right. So I've had the um, the next question I have for you, actually, concerning the sort of broader role of the um, Libyan reaction is is concerning food. Now, the the crisis in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has obviously absolutely exacerbated the already uh, delicate food crisis for many. But I think what's particularly notable about Libya is the amount of emphasis it has uh it imports a good i think it's the 10th largest purchaser of wheat um from russia and russia and ukraine 
uh, together make up over 50% of uh, wheat production around the world. So I'm very curious to hear, you know, your perspective about about the events of of Ukraine on the sort of food insecurity that's facing them, that Libya could potentially face, uh, and and whether or not that may tip the the balance of of how much they support uh, the Ukrainian resistance or not. Yes, you're right. Libya, as most of the Arab countries, I mean, Egypt is the worst one. Egypt is the largest importer of wheat and, uh, uh, from. Uh, both Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, Libya is one of the largest ones, as many other Arab countries. And they've been dependent uh, 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 on those imports. Prices of food have soared dramatically, uh, especially since um, you know, wheat is, is uh, stable in the, in the Arab countries in general, and in Libya in particular. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that can be... Uh, Sidetrack. I mean, uh, sidestepped. So there is a major impact on the economic side of things. Uh, the the problem is that it's sort of lost in the whole chaos of the Libyan economy itself. The Libyan economy essentially is non-existent. I mean, it, you know, just to give you a very specific, straightforward analogy here, think of Libya as a gas station. Uh, you know right on the shores of the Mediterranean. It has the largest shore of the Mediterranean. It, it basically pumps oil and gas, uh, passing tankers that pick it up and take it all, all sides of the world, especially in Europe, and they pay uh, for that oil. Uh, and then whoever is in charge of the country in the past and now, uh, whether... Uh, it was Gaddafi, or now the 100,000 people who are all has, have a small little corner of it. And, that, and that's really what's fueling all of the civil war inside, because whoever controls the governments or the machinery of the central bank and finance uh, gets to play king, gets to have all the cash, and he gets to distribute it among the population in different direction as, as he or she wishes to do so. So that's fueling this real sort of rabid, you know, uh, comp- competition uh, for power uh, in Libya. And uh, the, the irony of, of this, of course, is that as many rentier states around the world, but in Libya, because oil is, is, is exactly 98% oil responsible for 98% of revenues. So it is, you know, there's no economy without oil. That makes, that's the only source of income. And and that's why everybody is sort of almost crazy trying to do it. The Russian involvement in Libya is essentially a part, you know, it has multiple levels to it. Uh, And one of them, uh, a great deal of it is about the oil and the gas deposits. Libya has the largest gas and, and oil deposits in Africa. It represents close to 40% of all reserves in Africa. It is one of the founders of OPEC. It is, I think, the seventh right now uh, exporter of oil. Europe, especially Italy, Germany, and France depend a great deal on, on these imports from Libya, even though now basically the Wagner Group and with uh, their affiliation or with Haftar have closed exports of oil. Ironically, during the best time to actually collect money over the last few months, Libyan oil productions has halted completely because, you know, and this is something that I I hope we can get it it to, the Russian presence in Libya is essentially on the oil fields. 
it's it's in the area of the oil fields, and therefore uh, they have the level they use to actually close off oil production and production or open it up. In this environment with the war in Ukraine, they are controlling this oil side of Libya, and therefore they by by extension they're impacting the global oil markets and the ability of Europe to replace the Russian gas. So I want to pick up on this um, element a little bit more because uh, from what I can tell, you know, Libya is a is a melting pot, if that's the best analogy to use, um, of of natural resources and renewable resources. It's got about 53 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, according to some estimations, and about 48 billion barrels worth of oil. So it's, it's it, probably more. Probably more than that. Yeah. Yeah, because the 48 billion is just the, the liquid oil, but there are some estimates of the shell oil the shale oil, oil uh, that Libya is one of the largest of that. And that doesn't, they don't include that in these reserves. Uh, okay. There are some, estim- some estimates that say if you take the total reserves of Libya, uh, it'll reach about 80 billion. So, oh, wow. So why, why in your eyes then is, the, is Libya not being considered more as a, as a, as a potential offsetter? Uh, with obviously Russia being sanctioned absurdly heavily now, um, albeit the sanctions are going to take time to be fully felt. Uh, why isn't Libya as a as a country? You know, the Americans are even uh, his trip to to Israel and Saudi Arabia to try and get Gulf states or the GCC to you know try and increase the amount of production that they have. Pretty sure Saudi Arabia is entering its you know near spare capacity at this point. Why aren't the Europeans and the Americans looking to Libya? You know, they're they're even thinking about trying to maybe draw down the sanctions against Venezuela and Iran as a way to offset some of the energy uh, lack of supply. So just curious for your take on that and sort of w- would that be if there was a great impact in the West to help yeah. stabilise the country, would that then they could offset the energy as a sort of bargaining chip or something like that? Yes, I mean, uh, the, the problem is really because who are you going to deal with in Libya right now without solving the political problem, without coming up with some form of a legitimate government that can control all of the territory of Libya and, and has power or the ability to extend its authority over the areas that now essentially are occupied territory by the Wagner group. Who do, who do you deal with, right? So you're right. Technically or theoretically, Libya can be a major oil and gas supplier to the West. I mean, at one point in the late 60s, early 70s, Libya was producing 3 million barrels a day. Now, dwindled down in its highest capacity over the last 20 years, it reached 1.7 million. That was during Gaddafi. After that, oil fields are being closed and opened at a whim. So the oil markets have learned to to go around the Libyan oil. At one point, uh, oil production came to zero for almost two years, around uh, 2015-16. Now it went up to about a million barrels uh, a few months ago, and then now it's back to less than 100,000 because of all these closures. Uh, which are, of course, the narrative of the Haftar side of things is that these are the tribes in control of these oils. They are the ones who are closing it because they're not getting any benefit. The reality is it is a bargaining chip, and behind it is really the Russians um, who are using some of these local tribes and Haftar to close the oil um, tabs. 
especially after the Ukrainian uh, war. Now, if you have a, a legitimate or a smart or a capable government in Libya, they they could essentially really get the rest of the world to be dependent on them in many ways, especially Europe. But that means they have to invest enormously in new infrastructures because the old infrastructures are completely uh, destroyed by negligence, by war, by all kinds of things. So Libya needs some substantial investments uh, in its oil and gas infrastructure. That cannot happen uh, without, of course, uh, American and European help. Uh, Libya has the money, it can do it, but it has no technical know-how entirely. Oil companies in the West, of course, are very weary. I mean, who would want to invest uh, or send personnel in Libya, especially during the last 10 years? Western governments are not really willing seriously to impose some kind of a security uh, on in, in Libya to protect uh, any new investments or new uh, technical know-how from American oil. I know a number of American oil companies who are very, very keen to be in Libya, but uh, what are they going to do? <laughs> you know, unless you have some kind of a security there, um, it's gonna, the cost is just enormous. So, so, so it's a combination of things. But yes, theoretically, yes, you can. If you invest heavily in the infrastructure, you invest in the security of the country, you can essentially create a whole new uh, supply chain. You know, you raised some really good points there. And for me, it's, 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 well, so are we talking, I mean, I want to, you, you're kind of bringing us towards the main area that I want to focus the last couple of questions on, which is the Wagner Group itself. You know, from what I mean, I'm getting the sense of sort of, if you're not going to have one security PMC there, if you want to classify Russia as that, technically speaking, they are, but you know how close they are with the, the Kremlin. You need a sort of another alternative or external security force to sort of help ensure and stabilize the country. For much of the 2010s, Libya was a failed state or failing at least. Um, in some eyes, it was even a collapsed state. But w- w- how much do you think that the, the given what's happened with Ukraine, uh, and the shift of Russia, it is definitely drawing down its its presence in the region, um, albeit you still got them exerting as much influence as it can through these sort of, at least should we say, non-conventional forms of military uh, statecraft, namely the use of, well, the Wagner Group to try and do the sort of the bidding. Uh, look at Mali now and, and also... Um, I think there's presence of Wagner groups still in Venezuela and, and the caucuses, they make up a bit of the peacekeeping troops down there. But what, what do you think about the Wagner group from here? They uh, they entered the fray, at least we know, from 2019, but haven't really sort of overly influenced the situation. I'm aware that they do control, as you say, some of the energy uh, fields and distribution, therefore. But just could you take us through a little bit more of the Wagner group's intricate dealings in Libya uh, and what maybe lessons yeah. or main points we can take and compare to sort of Ukraine at the moment? Yeah, Uh, well, Russian officially, at least, uh, has provided what they call advisors to Haftar um, in in the eastern part of the country since about 2015 or so. In fact, there was a very public event in which uh, one of the uh, carriers of Russia came uh, off the shore of Benghazi, where he is, and he went on board to meet with uh, uh, the chief of staff of the Russian uh, forces, uh, sign agreements and so on, and that was public. I remember at that time, chiefs of, of American uh, military uh, establishment have raised alarms about that. 
Anyway, it has been ignored, and therefore things develop. Russia wanted to be involved in Libya in support of Haftar assault on the capital in 2019. And there are a number of things here that I would like for you to take away from this. One is that Russia did not want to involve officially its military in this endeavor because they were never sure how the West or NATO are going to respond, given that Libya is literally a, you know, a stone throw away from, from NATO uh, bases in Europe. I mean, people don't really realize how close uh, Libyan shores are to Europe. They are very, very close. Uh, I'm talking less than an hour uh, of flights uh, between uh, Libya and, and, uh, and Italy, for example, where a lot of NATO bases are. Uh, same thing in Turkey or France, maybe an hour and a half or so to, to Germany. So that was one consideration, why they did not want to officially. And until today, they still deny their, their presence in Libya. Of course, uh, everybody knows they are there. But they they keep on arguing officially, as the foreign Lavrov, you know, foreign minister always keeps on repeating. Oh, that's a private group. We have nothing to do with that. Which is actually an interesting thing. Uh, raises a question in my mind: Is if Russia denies that Wagner Group are affiliated with it, and that you know it has no interest in them, that opens the door actually, technically, to bombing them. And, and actually for the United States or NATO to actually bomb them uh, seriously and, and um, uh, move them by force from Libya. And Russia can't say anything about it because, you know, okay, you said these are not your troops. Great. So we are taking care of it, as the United States did in, in Syria. At one. So the, the Russians sent the Wagner group as as an auxiliary to the to Haftar's forces that wanted to take over the country by force in 2019, and they focused their attention on the capital because that's really if the capital falls, then Libya falls, and they've reached a point where they were literally on the outskirts of Tripoli, and it was Russian personnel, Russian Wagner Group people. I mean, there are videos of them, pictures of them. They planted all kinds of mines, including mines and and in uh, in children toys, uh, so children can be blown up. Uh, I mean, it was horrendous. That was in 2019. Another ironic thing that I think people need to remember and and take away from this is that the country that financed them to enter into Libya, which is the biggest ally of Haftar, is no other than the United Arab Emirates, which is supposedly a great close ally of the United States. The U.S. has all kinds of sanctions against the Wagner Group, yet when one of its uh, so-called allies finances them to enter into North Africa, the U.S. doesn't even say a word about it. And that, of course, that was during the Trump administration, but until today, the Biden administration did not actually hold the UAE responsible for that even though there are sanctions that the U.S. and Europe have on the books that uh, supposedly will punish any country or any individual that deals with the Wagner Group. Now, Haftar and the UAE opened the door for Wagner to come into Libya by financing them and by uh, accepting them there. However, now I don't think either one of them has any control over them. 
Uh, right now, Russians basically, I mean, they used Khattar as a Trojan horse. They entered the country, took over all of the major military bases in, and all of the major oil installations, which also all have air uh, uh, strips and so on, so they can be used for military cargo planes and, and fighter jets. They've controlled a number of oil fields directly, as the Libyan National Oil Company has, has announced on multiple levels. One of them is one of the largest oil fields, which is in the southwestern part of Libya, close to the Algerian border. It's called Sharara oil field. Uh, produces a little bit over 300,000 barrels a day, which they control. And then they have probably the most advanced base uh, in the south of Libya, uh, or you know, west uh, or the middle south of Libya, Ejfara, which actually through which they expand their operations into Africa. I mean, as as you sort of um, noted, uh, Wagner Group is right now in about nine African countries. Most visible in places like Mali. CAR is another one, isn't it? Exactly. CAR Central Africa, uh, Sudan. So they are using Libya not only to control Libya and the oil fields, uh, oil installations in Libya, and also as a way to threaten Southern Europe and and, and, um, NATO bases. But they are also using it to expand their operations throughout Africa. So strategically speaking, you would think that the United States and, and, and Europe will deal with this threat before it gets worse, but they keep on ignoring it and it keeps on getting worse. Today, their bases in Libya are completely insulated. They have dug in, they have created air defenses around them. They, they did a lot, it's gonna be much harder to get them out. Yes, they drew down some of these elements to take them to the Ukraine over the last few months, but that's because nobody's threatening them in Libya. They are sitting there pretty, pretty much in control of everything. Nobody's paying attention to them. Uh, nobody's talking about them, yet they are the ones who control it. The only threat they have, really, they, have, they faced and they had to come to term with is uh, Turkey. If Turkey did not enter into Libya in 2019 to defend the capital, Today, you would have a first capital in the world in the hands of a Wagner group. Well, that's what I'm curious to follow up on, actually, is um, my last question for you, actually, uh, involves Turkey. So, just on the Turkey issue, you know, they have, much like Russia, similar sort of sphere of influence near abroad regional hegemonic ambitions specifically in the in the case of turkey with neo ottomanism uh, and this is something we touched upon in a, in another discussion with emre uzlu actually about you know how turkey is viewing the uh, the events in ukraine uh, nato obviously and and more broadly but turkey's been very active as you alluded to just now in Libya itself, as well as, you know, helping to try and offset its uh, economic instability through arms exports. They sold so many to the Ethiopians uh, in the um, uh, in the federal government's fight against uh, the TPLF and the OLA. Uh, but we've also seen them quite active in Somalia, uh, Mogadishu and things. So I'm just curious, do you think that with Russia sort of drawing down or having to refocus its efforts specifically on Ukraine, do you think Turkey is going to take up the mantle and become the primary player in the MENA region, uh, at least in the northeastern part of Africa? It, it is, but, you know, you need to view Turkey a little bit different than Russia. 
Turkey's involvement in North Africa specifically and the Middle East is, is deep and very long. It's historic. Uh, don't forget that much of that part of the world was under the Ottoman Empire, you know, before countries were formed. I mean, Libya wasn't a Libya until 1930, when the Italians named it Libya. Before that, it was just simply a state within the Ottoman Empire. There are massive social, economic, tribal, you name it, relationship with Turkey that extend back hundreds of years. For example, I mean, I'll take Libya. And you can apply this to Algeria and Egypt as well. And in Libya... Their estimates are literally close to a million, if not more, of Libyans themselves have are either descendants of of Turkish uh, uh, or or of Osman. At that time, there was no Turkey; it was the Ottoman Empire. Ottomans, uh, who included all kinds of nationalities and backgrounds, it was almost like the Roman Empire, where everybody was in. Libya was for most of its history, for the last four hundred years or so, until the European colonial period. In, turn of the century, the 20th century, uh, was a part in a state, wilaya uh, in Arabic, of, of, of the Ottoman Empire. So the involvement of Turkey in Libya is quite a different game than Russia. Libya doesn't have any social relationship with Russia. There are no tribes, there are no, you know, Libyans of Russian origins. Uh, there has never been trade with Russia directly. Uh, from Libya. Uh, Turkey came to the rescue of Tripoli, in particular, western part of Libya, twice in its history. One in, in, in um, the, I think, the 15th or 16th century, uh, when the Knights of Malta tried to also take over Tripoli. And the uh, people of Tripoli at that time requested help from the Ottoman Empire. And that's how uh, Turkey entered Libya initially, or uh, Ottomans, I keep. And now in 2019, when the Russians were about to, or not even the Russian state, but the Russian mercenaries were about to take over the capital. And at that time, the government that was in Tripoli requested help. And Turkey was the country to respond uh, quickly and uh, send its troops and its air defenses and its uh, equipments and so on, and even soldiers to defend the capital, and they pushed back the Wagner group and um, mercenaries that came with them all the way back to uh, Sirte, which is the middle point in Libya. On the, on, and that's why the country now is divided, in a sense, almost equally between East and West. Without that, without that Turkish involvement, today you will have uh, first probably capital in the world under the, the rule of a mercenary, even though they probably put up a, a Libyan face like after in the front, but at the, at, at the end, they are the ones in control. So uh, we need to view Turkey a little bit differently than, than, than Russia. Now, Turkey, of course, ambitions on the larger scale of things. Uh, in Africa, for example, uh, you know, there is a debate there. You can, you can make the same argument as you do to, about Russia. But in Syria, for example, in Iraq, uh, in uh, these were Ottoman territories, so there is no real shock here that Turkey uh, is exerting influence in these parts of the world, especially now that there is more and more of a vacuum, a power vacuum in these countries, in Iraq to some extent, Syria, uh, Libya. So yes, Turkey is re-engaging its old territories, uh, 
you know, after its decline over the last hundred years, Turkey is now experiencing a resurgence under the Turkish flag rather than the Ottoman flag, but it still has uh, these connections. I was in Istanbul a couple of months ago, and uh, for those of you who haven't been there recently, Istanbul literally has become like the New York or London of the Islamic world. Uh, all of its old territories. I mean, you're walking in the streets of Istanbul and you hear Arabic, you hear Urdu, you hear uh, uh, Farsi, you hear Ar uh, Armenian. Uh, all of these populations now are present in Istanbul. I mean, for them, I know Libyans go by this massive uh, amount of, uh, or a number of Libyans who go to Istanbul on a daily basis. Uh, it's the only country also that doesn't require visas for most of these Arab and Islamic countries. So it has become the center, like the Rome, for trade for most of these countries. Uh, the investments are coming into Turkey from these countries. Uh, so it, it is a part and parcel of the region. It's, it's very hard to deny uh, or to define uh, where the Ottoman links are with, and, and where they start and where they end when it comes to part of the world. Don't forget the Ottoman Empire was the dominant empire in the world for hundreds of years. It, it only was dismantled about 100 years ago. I mean, so it's very recent history. So its impact is still there. No, it, it, it lingers, in, doesn't it? It, it very yeah. much lingers. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Afed. I really appreciate thank you. that. Um, all right. Um, Gregory, uh, we'd like to go to you next, uh, and then we'll see where we are. Hi, uh, thank you, Piotr. And uh, I had a question for Hafed, and it has to do with Egypt, which you haven't mentioned yet. On paper, at least, they have quite a large military, many thousands of tanks, and apparently quite large capabilities. And I wonder what your comments might be on if, if they would ever become involved, and uh, where, how, how, what they would do should, were they to become involved. That's a very important question, Gregory. And, and, and Egypt has been a part of the political game in Libya for the entire history of Libya. But over the last few years, if we cut off until in 2019, 20, and up to now, uh, Egypt also supported Haftar. They did so mainly politically and diplomatically. And secondly, through intelligence service. So the, Lib the Egyptian intelligence is very, very much involved uh, with Haftar force, and it's a, you know, it's a, it sees Haftar as as its uh, Allah uh, because he controls uh, uh, the borders uh, for Egypt. I mean, he controls the, the I think it's a thousand kilometers. I mean, a huge part of Egypt, uh, and and they needed the security, especially. Um, for their back as they confront Ethiopia, as they confront uh, Turkey, Israel, you name it. So they support him, but they have not really supported him with, with military. The only military uh, support they provided was to allow the Emirates to fly over Egypt and supply Haftar with weapons. Uh, unfortunately, that cost Egypt a lot because Egypt was always seen by the entire Libyan population as the big sister. Uh, everybody felt quite close to Egypt. Everybody felt Egypt is the place of refuge where, you know, it supported Libya. 
Unfortunately, over the last few years, the people of the Western part of Libya have, of course, developed a very deep suspicion of, of Egypt, especially since it supported the guy who was trying to invade them. I mean, I, don't forget, Tripoli suffered about a year of nightly bombing, especially by also UAE uh, uh, planes. Uh, the UN at that time in 2019 estimated that about 200,000 people in Tripoli were forced to flee their homes because of these bombings and killings. So it, the wound is deep. Uh, and, and so anybody who supported Haftar is seen with uh, suspicion. So Egypt lost on that count. However, when it comes to the military, uh, Egypt at one point, uh, and it still is, it's completely obsessed with the idea that Turkey essentially is in Libya. They, they, they absolutely want that, to stop that. Um, uh, this is also based on my own personal discussions with various Egyptian officials. That is a major objective for them, is to remove Turkey from Libya. Because they see the Erdogan government as a sympathizer with the Muslim brotherhoods who are the sworn enemy of, of Sisi's regime, as, as, as you know. So they want Turkey out. However, you know, I don't think that's an achievable objective, uh, especially now. Uh, because the people of the West want Turkey to stay. I mean, it's their guarantee against any future invasion. They don't have any other guarantee. Nobody's willing to support them or defend them except Turkey. And I, you know, that's that's a reasonable thing to expect. But at one point, there was a lot of discussion about whether Egypt will, will commit troops to fight Turkish troops in Libya. My take on that is it's an impossibility for Egypt. I don't think the Egyptian military is capable of facing off with the Turkish military. I don't think Egypt is willing to pick a fight, a uh, military fight, uh, with a NATO member, especially a major NATO member like Turkey. I mean, it has one of the largest armies within the NATO structure. So I think Egypt's options are very limited in, in that they need to come to terms uh, with the Turkish presence and, and they need to probably deal with Turkey directly uh, and come to an understanding about Libya. Uh, I don't think they have much of an option other than that. And I think it's, we, we're seeing beginnings of, of these kind of uh, points of contact between Egypt and Turkey. I mean, as, as Turkey sort of re-engaged with uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, with even the Emirates, uh, I think you'll see also Turkey engaging with Egypt soon. And I think they, they're going to have to, you know, divide things up, essentially. I mean, there are two issues for, for Egypt with Turkey. One is the Eastern Mediterranean gas. Uh, which Egypt is aligning itself with Greece against Turkey over the last few years. And the second thing is the Libya issue. And I think they're going to have to come to terms with both of these issues directly with Turkey. Thank you very much for that question, Gregory. And thank you, Hafad, for your great answer. With that, I think this episode of The Global Gambit is coming to a wrap. But before we do so, uh, Hafad, is there any other things you'd like to emphasize for our listeners, both on the Twitter spaces, um, but also on the podcast episode before we we've, 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 we depart? Any, any way that, you know, any publications you've got coming out, where can people engage with you aside from Twitter as well? Uh, sure. Well, well, my first advice to everybody with something you like is that they should uh, follow you and they should engage in your future podcasts, which have been 
enormously enriching, and they have, I think, covered uh, every possible angle on on the Ukraine issue since it started in March. And I hope you expand it also to cover other parts of the world. You know, I'm grateful to be one of the people you chose to talk to about this. The second, you know, thing that involves me, and that is to please reach out to me on Twitter anytime, to also please follow the, the Foreign Policy Institute, both, uh, uh, you know, it's available in all social media. You know, you find us on um, LinkedIn, on uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can sign up for also the Ibn Khaldun, uh, the center or the initiative I'm leading. Uh, we have uh, weekly newsletters that are uh, starting. Uh, we have uh, planned a number of events and specifically focused on North Africa and will include also Egypt as a part of that, especially as it relates to both uh, European, uh, to the EU and to the United States and to sort of try to bring a little bit more of a light on North Africa, part of the world that is really strategic to both the U.S. and, and Europe, but somehow has been uh, always uh, folded under the Middle East without really recognizing that it's quite a different uh, or, or a distinct part of the world. So I would invite you to do that. If, if I just want to sum it up, is that you probably, all of you can see that today it's very hard to entangle all of these global issues, uh, you know, a war in the Ukraine, for example, who would have thought will have parallels or links uh, to a country like Libya. But there, there it is. It is there. Uh, so now anything that happens around the world seems to be connected to everything else. And I think the larger thing that I've been looking into is how we reach a point in history, I think, as human beings, in which our problems are no longer... So I think we need to elevate our discussions into these things. Into Yes, uh, you can have a local reflection, but the essential part is that there are global issues, and they reflect themselves differently in certain parts of the world, but, but at the same time, you can't solve them unless you're looking at the big picture altogether. Thank you all Absolutely. very, very much for taking the time to, to join me. Thank you very much, Hafad. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a delight hosting you on this episode of The Global Gambit. You know, uh, transnationality, I think, is, is what comes to mind. These transnational issues that are plaguing all of us um, in, in many different shapes and forms. And that includes even conventional warfare, which is increasingly asymmetrical. But as has shown with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that military engagement isn't yet um, not involving conventional ground forces, albeit, you know, we've seen things with cyber as well. But with that, we've got a, I want to thank everybody for listening in, be it on Twitter Spaces, Clubhouse, or on the podcast itself, this isn't possible without you, great dear listeners, uh, and also to my patrons like Wook Lee, who uh, make this also possible. And if you want to be a patron of the um, podcast, you can do so by checking out the Patreon page under the Global Gambit. But with that, I've been your host, Piotr. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. You were listening to the Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions? 
such as potential guests, get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.